The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Women and Sport, The Long Road Up, with host Carol Oglesby. This program explores the historical roots that women's sport has taken in the past half century, from light competition to collegiate, professional, and Olympic sports today. Now, here is your host, Carol Oglesby. Welcome, welcome, everybody. One of the most dominant themes across this series has been the empowerment and the health benefits of sport, and how important it is that everyone has access. Our guests today are three people that have dedicated themselves to uh, what I'm calling the ALL in all, uh, dedicated to inclusion of all in the most comprehensive way. So just in case you don't know them well, let's get to our introduction segment. Um, Eli, uh, Eli Wolf, let's begin with your story. Uh, Tell us about Eli growing up, uh, family influences, what was your beginning connection to sport? And was there anything else that almost won out as a career or has it always been sport-based? Okay, well, thank you for having us. And it's really an honor to be a part of the conversation. For me growing up, I, uh, I had a stroke when I was two years old. And then just coming right off of that, my family put me right into sports, particularly soccer and also racket sports, um, and I just really enjoyed the power of sport and what it was doing for me and the community and getting connected um, and being a part of it. And I, and I realized that there was really uh, something there. So I really pursued that. Um, and then when I, I, I got to compete in the, in the Paralympic Games, and uh, that's when I started to realize some of the issues of inequality and access and, and being able to see some of the differences of, um, of opportunity for athletes with disabilities in the journey to that level, all the way from grassroots to elite. Um, but for me, I also really enjoyed writing, and my family really emphasized um, academics, sports, and service. So I, was, I came from a very socially justice-minded family. Um, and so I think early on, those themes were really prominent in my life. And, uh, but I always enjoyed writing, and at one point I really thought I'd go down the route of a being more of an English major and a writer and those things, but I ended up sort of combining my interests of sport and academics and activism sort of into a big soccer ball, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let me ask you to give just a tiny bit more detail. Uh, sound like you started soccer when you were quite young. Uh, what kinds of things did you participate in? Did you go up through age group and participate yeah. in, in junior high, high school, anything like in a, a scholastic sport? Yeah, I got to compete all the way through. You know, um, I played at Brown University when I was there as a student athlete, but I got my start at the youth levels. And I, I always just played, you know, with all the other kids without disabilities. I was usually the only one that was there that had a disability. Um, but I was able to keep up, you know, all the way through. And then it was really in my uh, senior year of high school 
that I found out about the Paralympic opportunities because um, those were really just getting um, more publicity um, and more opportunities out there for people with disabilities at that point. And then we've always seen, seen a lot of growth over the years and leading into Rio and so forth. But at the time, there wasn't as much information or, or anything out there. So um, that was actually one of the you know sparks for me. But, but for me, playing soccer, it was just a big passion between soccer and tennis and you know, just running around and, and just being an active kid. You know, I just really, really got into sports um, and just got really into it all the way through. And, and I wasn't necessarily the most competitive kid in terms of, like, being the one that was only focused on sport. I was actually the one on the field that was usually the one asking more of the social questions and, and wondering, you know, what was happening to, uh, you know, was everyone, uh, you know, feeling included? And I kind of was more the one on the team that was, focusing on the experience of the team rather than just on the performance and the results. Sounds like that sense of inclusion started pretty early with you, but we're going to get to that in yeah. a minute. Um, Hudson, Taylor, how about you? Tell us about yourself. Where did you grow up? How did you get involved in sports? And did you participate in everything or always wrestling? Wrestling was certainly the sport at which you excelled. So tell us about uh, the growing up time for Hudson Taylor. Yeah, so uh, first and foremost, again, thank you for, for having me on. Um, I I grew up in New Jersey. I started wrestling when I was six years old, so it's probably always been a big part of my identity and um, the way in which I always sort of got my athleticism in was, was on a wrestling mat. Um, but, you know, I think the one thing that was unique about my experience is I was a wrestler who grew up in a soccer town. So although I was very good at my sport at a pretty early age, uh, it definitely wasn't a very popular sport. And so uh, I kind of, I think, learned at a very early age that uh, I was going to participate in sports for me and not for, uh, you know, popularity, which I think sometimes is a, is a byproduct of, of being good at a sport. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, I mean, I, I wrestled all throughout middle school, high school, um, did a little bit of cross-country here and there, but really it was just a mechanism to uh, be in better shape for wrestling season than anything else. And uh, I was fortunate to get a, a scholarship and, and wrestle at the University of Maryland um, and was, uh, you know, pr- did, did pretty well as a college athlete and then went on after I graduated uh, to coaching for a few years at Columbia University. So wrestling's uh, kind of in my blood, and I'm as in love with it today as I ever was. Uh, But unfortunately, it's not as active a part of my life as it once was. Well, I want to say that uh, doing pretty well in wrestling, that's a bit of an understatement, but maybe you don't want to talk about all those NCAA laurels right now. Uh, (laughs) But maybe just take a minute or two more and say, what is it about wrestling? What is it about that sport? That is one thing. The people I have met that were in wrestling are really, really passionate about their sport. What is it, do you think, for you anyway? Um, I think it's a few things. One, um, I love the history of wrestling and that it can be traced back to one of the first sports ever, ever, uh, ever, you know, convened. Um, I think second, I, what I love about sports is that it's one of the few sports that, um, anybody can excel at regardless of their size or, uh, you know, physical ability. Um, you know, because we have weight classes, you know, at the college level, you can have somebody who weighs 125 pounds or 285 pounds, uh, and both of whom could be competing at a very elite level. 
So I, I love that, you know, wrestling is a sport that uh, anybody can excel at. I love that it only takes you and another person. Um, so, you know, it's really, uh, from, a create, from a creativity standpoint, it's only limited by your imagination in terms of the moves and the techniques. Um, and I think we've seen a, a really interesting evolution of the sport, even over the last 50 years. Um, so there continues to be really new novel technique coming out uh, from kids who are even in middle school. Um, yeah, and, the, and I'd say the last thing is uh, we've, have, we've had athletes like Anthony Robles, um, you know, an mm-hmm. athlete who had one leg uh, win an NCAA championship. Uh, we have rules built into the sport for uh, athletes who are seeing impaired. Um, so, again, I just think that because it's just you and another person, there are a lot of aspects of wrestling that make it uh, inherently inclusive in its actual structure. Very interesting. Mary, you're our uh, representative for the girl part of this program. What was yeah. your path to sport? And uh, did be was being a girl that loves sport any challenge for you? Where did your family come down on that? Yeah, sure. Um, thank you, Carolyn. First of all, thanks for inviting all of us uh, to be here this afternoon. Uh, you know, I was looking back at some of the other shows in the series that you've done. These are great. So thanks for letting us be a part of it. I appreciate it very much. Um, in terms of my background, um, I grew up in northern Indiana. Um, I, I was the youngest of three. I had two older brothers. So when it came to, and we grew up in the country, so when it came to being, uh, wanting to be part of anything, I had to keep up with my two older brothers. And so we would be outdoors all day playing softball, playing baseball, playing wiffle ball, whatever season it was, throwing the football around um, in the field between our house and my grandparents' house, which was next door to us. Um, so I was very active right away, um, and, but one thing I remember uh, as a little girl was that my brothers got to play Little League Baseball, you see, and I didn't. Oh, yeah. They could play. They got the uniforms, the whole thing. I used to go and watch them, and I would think, you know, I can, th- I can throw that hard. I can run that fast, but I couldn't play. I can also remember as a kid going to their games, and when the kids would hit foul balls, I would race all the other, like the little boys, and grab that baseball, throw it back into the umps, and hope they saw my arm and how good I could throw. I could remember that. Um, so I was a good little athlete. When I went to high school, I was a post-Title IX athlete. Um, I, Title IX, of course, being passed in 1972. I competed in high school. I graduated high school in 1975. I was a four-sport athlete in high school. I was lucky that my uh, high school did uh, offer that many sports for girls, and we won. I won a couple of state championships and even, even competed and qualified for the, the very first Indiana high school girls uh, state track meet. So that was, that was pretty cool. Um, I felt like I got nice support from my family. Um, they would come, my father and mother would come to watch games whenever they were able to. You know, they, uh, dad worked full-time, mom, mom worked part-time as well uh, to help us get through school. But they would come and watch whenever. Um, and I also felt that they were very, very supportive of me when I then went on to compete as a three-sport athlete at the University of Notre Dame. Um, I was there from 75 and graduated in 79. And uh, they would come to those games because we only lived less than 10 miles from campus. Um, and they would come and watch. And I know how very proud they were because my mom always wanted to send all three of her kids to Notre Dame, and she did. All three of us went there. So to see her daughter wearing a Notre Dame uniform, I know, made, uh, well, made both my mom and dad proud. So I felt that I got some very nice um, support from them on that. I think I was very, very fortunate that way. 
Well, I learned uh, as a Californian moving back mm-hmm. to Indiana at a certain yeah. point in my life, um, mm-hmm. I learned rapidly about girls basketball in Indiana. And uh, uh-huh. that was uh, probably stands out as unique across the United States with the kind of attention that was given to a girl sport. Well, mm-hmm. okay, we've got just a f- few more minutes in this segment. So I'm going to ask each of you to comment on something that's maybe a little bit, a little bit delving a little deeper um your each of your signature in sport is inclusion and i'm wondering if there was anything in your sport experiences or in your whatever growing up experiences that made a very deep impression on you about everyone getting a chance so nobody being shut out um was there one significant event or was it more like a continuing saga um Eli you mentioned that that was sort of your int- orientation you were looking at other people on the field and how they were experiencing the game so how about you take this on first was it one thing that sort of touched you in that inclusion way or it just continuing um i obviously think it uh it gets me thinking about early experiences but then it also gets me thinking about sort of current things i guess at an earlier age for me, there were some incidences with um, physical education teachers that really kind of basically discriminated against me and uh, just sort of isolated me or put me on the sideline, didn't give me a chance to actually be a part of the class. And uh, so there were some of those kind of experiences that took part. There was a music class where a teacher um, basically just told, isolated me and like laughed at me for not having um, a uh, laces, but instead I had Velcro shoes. And so those things really stick with you at young ages and, and draw that passion. Um, but then in the sport aspect, as I grew into the sport, there were these moments where um, one time we were, we were having our training camp with the national team and we were going on to a, a high school field and uh, a, little, a pre-K soccer team uh, came on and said that they had already reserved the field, and this is for our national team for the Paralympics. And so we had to leave the field to to a, a pre-K soccer team. Um, and so just logistically, I mean, it's nothing against the pre-K soccer team by any means, but just the feeling of, of not really feeling like we were an actual national team representing our country um, to be able to have the types of opportunities that um, would go along with that. Um, and also just to realize um, how... Just, just to feel like there was something going on, some level of inequality, and just feeling how are you feeling valued as an athlete. Um, yes. Yeah. So I guess it really wasn't until I started to read about sports, and I really learned a lot in a course I took at college um, about gender and sport and race and sport. Um, and then for me, it was just eye-opening because there was nothing in the whole book about people with disabilities. And, and actually, for that matter, looking back on it, I don't think there was very much on LGBT athletes in that book. Um, and so it just got me thinking about how invisible these athletes are and these topics are. And, uh, it really inspired me to kind of reach out and connect. And that's sort of when I started to investigate it more beyond being an athlete, but, um, but yeah, it was, it's sort of been this ongoing journey, I would say. Yeah. Um, Mary, um, how about you? Yeah, I would say, uh, two things. One is, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I was a pretty early post-Title IX athlete. So you kind of learned early on uh, to fight um, for what you felt like you deserved as an athlete. And I think I, I did that in my, in my earlier years when it came to involvement for 
uh, for women in sport. Um, and of course, now I work a lot with, with Eli on uh, increasing opportunities for people with disabilities in sport as well. And uh, what really got me on that course was when I was working at St. Mary of the Woods College as the athletic director, um, oh, I was a big bicycle rider and a colleague that I worked with, her name was Wendy, she was as well. We used to do cross-country rides together and uh, oh, for years we did that. Uh, well, one day we went out and um, there was an accident and there was a truck that came. It, the truck missed me. I just ditched my bike, uh, but it hit her head on. And she, uh, as a result of that, had a uh, very severe traumatic brain injury. But what I saw over her period of um, healing as much as she could was because sport had been a part of her life, and she had been a swimmer and a golfer and played soccer and stuff, uh, when I saw that as she was trying to heal as best she could in what became just a, a, a fractionated life, how sport made her more whole. Someone would roll her a soccer ball, and she would light up. When she got well enough that she actually was able to be in the pool with assistance, to be back in the pool, and to see how sport and physical activity basically helped her become whole again um, in a a life now with a severe disability. Um, That really taught me a a, a lot when I saw that and made me realize the power of sport and what we have um, you know, in our hands as people who work in sport and how lucky we are to have that opportunity. So that was a big uh, event that uh, happening that got me involved in seeing how sport can help people with disabilities and the power that it has. Mm-hmm. Um, Hudson, we're going to run out of time in this segment, so I'd like for you to start, but um, I might have to break in, and then sure. we'll pick up your story uh, on the other side of the break. But uh, tell us maybe like in just a minute or so, uh, single event or saga? I kind of think it's probably going to be a saga. Sounds like sagas are coming here. Definitely a saga. But I would say uh, the one thing for me, I think, in terms of opening my eyes, was more about the culture of sport than anything else. Uh, I remember when I was in middle school, I had to leave a uh, competition because I was in the Nutcracker, the ballet. Um, so it was really, I was a, a, you know, a wrestler, but I loved theater. I loved art. I loved dance. And that juxtaposition between sports culture and theater culture, uh, it was really the beginning for me of like, wow, there's a culture present in sport that isolates and excludes people, um, of diverse interests, of diverse backgrounds and diverse experiences. Um, so definitely it was a, an ongoing education about, sports culture, but um, it's as present today as it was when I was a kid. Well, hold that thought. I'm going to ask everyone who's listening to keep the image in their mind of a champion wrestler also being in ballet, and we'll be back soon to finish that story on The Long Road Up. your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com Carol Oglesby has a documented commitment to performance enhancement and development of positive embodiment along the full age and ability spectrum. She has created sport community-based programs that empower, educate, motivate in a sports plus model. 
She has worked with elite athletes who have experienced injury, burnout, and challenged relationships with coaches and teammates. She is a life coach dedicated to aid in the rediscovery of clarity, purpose, and joy in clients. Call Carol today at 818-324-2957. That's 818-324-2957. Build your better business. Achieve that goal. Make good on that resolution. The Voice America Empowerment Channel. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. You are tuned in to Women and Sport, The Long Road Up. To reach Carol Oglesby or her guest today, please call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Now back to this week's show. Welcome back, everyone. I had asked our guests to talk about um, what had led them to uh, a great focus on inclusion in their careers. And Hudson was just talking very interesting stuff about the culture of sport and how um, that revealed itself to him over time. So just finish up your thoughts on that, Hudson, if you will. Yeah. Uh, again, I was just I was just saying, you know, I was a I was a theater kid who happened to be a, a, a wrestler. So I remember, you know, missing wrestling practice for theater rehearsal. And, of course, the comments from my coaches and sometimes my teammates was very homophobic, um, very much made fun of and put down the people who I was very close friends with in the theater department. And so I think at a very early age, I realized that the institution of sport tries to craft a form of masculinity that is less inclusive than it can or should be. It tries to perpetuate a uh, just a very traditional gender roles, um, both you know on the men's and women's side. So the homophobic language, the sexist language, was something that I heard early and often any time I expressed interest in anything other than traditionally masculine interests. Um, mm. And so I think, you know, that was an ongoing lesson for me and was a big part of my desire to try to change and end the homophobia and transphobia and sexism that is still all too present in sports. In this uh, second segment of the program, we're going to be talking about the dimensions of the great work that our three guests are doing. So Hudson, I'm going to ask you to continue on with your story. You went from being a champion collegiate wrestler to a coach at a um, Division One institution. All my coaching friends say that coaching is a full-time job plus times two or three or some dimension like that. So um, just tell us how it was that you created an organization, built momentum behind the athlete ally movement. How, how have you done that? Who has helped you and what have the obstacles been a- along the way? Well, I'd say the, the obstacles have definitely been many. Um, Obviously, when I was first starting Athlete Ally and coaching, it was very hard to balance the two. Um, I was getting asked to go and speak and work with athletic departments across the country, um, and so that was taking me out of the wrestling room at Columbia uh, a lot more often than I would have liked. I was doing a lot of training for for professional athletes and professional teams, um, really trying to educate them on how to create a more LGBT-inclusive climate. Um, so I, th- I think those challenges ultimately led me to realize that the work of Athlete Ally 
um, will only be as impactful as I would want it to be if I commit myself to that full time. Um, and so I, you know, unfortunately stepped away from coaching to really commit myself to building the organization and building our work uh, in a more sustainable way. I think, you know, the, the biggest challenges, the biggest ob- obstacles is that uh, the institution of sport, um, a lot of the problems are like cyclical and intergenerational, right? So the homophobia and sexism that is taught to today's athletes are then transferred because those athletes become our coaches, they become our athletic directors, uh, who then reteach that to the next generation of athletes. So I'd say the biggest challenge is in uh, getting people to understand the, the, how far we have to go to create a sporting environment that is truly equal and equitable for all of our constituents. Um, I think that it's privilege is blind to those who have it. So from a lot of um, coaches, athletic directors, athletes' point of view, their assumption is that sport is great, everything's awesome, um, but you know, it just takes a lot of education, a lot of hard work to get them to realize the difference between intent and impact, um, to understand the how their language can hurt other people, uh, and I think even to a greater extent, why the policies are so necessary uh, to create a more equal sporting environment for everyone. So uh, we've seen some amazing progress. I mean, in the last year, we've seen more athletes come out, uh, more allies speak out, more teams and leagues take a stand than at any other time in history. Uh, But I think the reality is that this work, you know, creating a sports space that is truly safe and respectful for LGBT athletes, um, this work, we're not at the beginning of the end. We're sort of at the end of the beginning. Um, so there are a lot of great environments. I mean, the average age of a kid coming out in the United States today is about 15. So the good thing is that a lot of, a lot of athletes today um, know somebody who identifies as a member of the LGBT community. That personal context um, makes the education a heck of a lot easier. Um, there are, unfortunately, still a lot of athletic spaces where athletes don't assume they have LGBT teammates or people in their life. Um, so I think it's it's still a struggle to try to um, bring about that education to the place where it can and should be, but we're certainly getting there. Um, I want to ask a question that really addresses uh, the ongoing um, situation with the Olympic Games in Rio. Um, I've noticed in social media that there's a commentary that there are 38 out lesbian athletes or coaches at the games. And um, to my knowledge, which could be limited, I've only read in social media about one gay male athlete that's out. So I'm not asking about people, persons per se, but I just wanted to ask you the question, are there in general gay male athletes at the games? And uh, what about the any differences between the situation for the male and female LGBTQ athletes? Is their situation basically the same or do you feel that their paths are quite different? Um, so there are out gay male athletes competing at the games. Um, I think that probably the statistics you've seen is a difference in on the U.S. side. Uh, we don't have many, if any, out male athletes competing for the United States, um, but there are uh, several out athletes from other, out male athletes from other countries. Um, I think when we look at the difference of, uh, of how homophobia impacts male and female athletes, um, the one thing that I always try to look at is how the structure of sport, how the institution of sport is inherently gendered. 
And so in other words, like sport is a, a, I think, a masculine space. And so in other words, you have an environment in which male athletes are assumed to be more masculine, female athletes are assumed to be more masculine, and then the way in which that assumption about, uh, about gender, about uh, gender expression, then factors into sexual orientation, um, changes the way in which male athletes and female athletes may feel comfortable coming out. So um, I think in some athletic spaces, it may, uh, the assumption that there are more lesbian athletes in sports uh, may in times make it easier for female athletes to come out. The assumption that there aren't male athletes, aren't gay male athletes is in part what makes it, I think, difficult for male athletes to come out. Um, that being said, while we have more female athletes who are out and competing, uh, the issue of homophobia in women's sports is still very much a problem on the coaching side um, because when you're an athlete, your athletic accomplishments can speak for themselves. But when you're a coach, your ability to keep your job um, is really contingent on how, how well your athletes can perform. And so if you have people making decisions about your coaching position uh, and the, the people making those decisions may or may not be homophobic, uh, it makes being an out LGBT coach uh, very difficult. So as a result, we've seen a steady increase of, of athletes coming out and competing, but I would say we haven't seen as similar uh, a change in the number of out coaches, out LGBT coaches. Um, and so that's, that's a big challenge that I'm not sure how we're going to solve, but uh, the reality is that homophobia and sexism impacts both men and women's sports uh, in, in very unique ways. Now, I know that um, Hudson, Eli, and Mary all three work together in various ways on all aspects of the inclusion that we're talking about today. So even though I'm not going to ask Eli and Mary to comment right now on um, what Hudson talked about, because we need to go have a, a good chunk of time for uh, persons with disabilities. But I did want to mention that uh, the three of you all work together on so many different uh, projects. Um, Eli and Mary, you've both traveled traditional academic paths for at least part of your lives, and you've added to these academic responsibilities very demanding work in international sport development and building support for policies both in the Olympic movement and in the UN system, especially through the Convention for the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. So I'd like to have each of you take a time, uh, describe how you went about balancing um, your academics and your uh, advocacy hats that you wear and um, and and how did you um, use your position for the best in both both worlds um, Eli why don't you go first if you will excellent and uh, just wanted to quickly just comment on uh, just to build on some of the Hudson's aspects because I do think that one of the common themes of all of our work is the notion of solidarity and allyship. And so I think for Athlete Ally to be such a prominent uh, platform to promote that concept, and it's really not just about LGBT, it's about um, race issues, gender, disability, you know, religion, it crosses the board. And so I think that's why it's been such an amazing contribution. And it really connects back, you know, to all the work that we've been involved in on international policy and being involved with disability policy as well as international sport for development policy. Um, 
you know, having had the chance to uh, work on the Supreme Court case. So that was really um, the sort of the starting point. We we were able to work on Casey Martin. He was a, a professional golfer who needed the use of a golf cart. And, uh, and he was really sort of this individual athlete at the PGA level, and there wasn't really much connection to the broader disability community. And so Mary and I and our other colleague, Anita Mormon, and another colleague, Lisa Master Alexis, we all sort of worked together to uh, build a coalition of national disability organizations to then support uh, Casey Martin in his what became a successful case to the PGA and um, to the Supreme Court. And he was then he won the right to use his golf cart in in competition, and so that was really a starting point to then be willing to look at the combination of of advocacy and policy and connecting kind of the research base of what we've been doing on inclusion to then actually making it more applied or engaged um, scholarship. Um, and so I think uh, that lens of of engaged scholarship has actually really enhanced our work so that we can bring about that kind of change and working actively. Um, you know, we had the opportunity to work on the Convention on the Rights of People with Disabilities um, sort of through happenstance. You know, we were in the right place at the right time or, you know, our colleagues that were working on the, the treaty um, were looked, you know, recognized the opportunity to include sections on sport and recreation. And, uh, and then we were able to be there to, to really help build that international coalition that could then um, develop that section on Article 30, 30.5, which addresses the right to sport, um, recreation, and play for people with disabilities. But I guess all that work was really just, I would say, a lens, and, and obviously Mary can speak as well, but from my perspective, it was, it was really became sort of a catalyst or a lens to a broader perspective of, of human rights in sport. And so although it was obviously focusing on disability, we recognized a much larger conversation of, of sort of the broad aspects of human rights in the in sport in the UN system and the Olympic movement and various governing bodies. And, uh, and we started to look at the literature on human rights in sport and, and recognize that there wasn't a lot there. There were some folks that were out there doing it. Um, and, uh, and so we, we, we thought that was really interesting to pursue. Um, but I say that it's, it's really um, an untapped area. You know, obviously, we need to continue to do this kind of work, I say. You know, I think um, Mary and I and our other colleagues would say it's really, you know, you and you, Carol, you know, I think we're all in Hudson. We're all in it because I think we believe that more needs to be done. Um, but I think because of the way we've approached that framework of engaged scholarship, I think that's allowed us to connect the research and the advocacy and the applied work. I mean, I think that that's, that's sort of been the, that's allowed us to do that work, but sometimes it does get a little chaotic and sometimes it does um, feel like we're operating at a lot of different levels at the same time. But at the same time, I think it, it's a, it's a way that we are able to see that kind of systems change approach um, and for me, uh, the final point I'll make is that it, although I do have obviously this passion for disability um, and includes people with disabilities, I think it's also this much broader, more imp important uh, perspective that it's really about everybody and, and that we all need to work together in that alliance um, 
so that we can build out much stronger policies and work together so that we end up, you know, being a fist and we all work together rather than being separate prongs. Um, so, so I think that that's why it's always been very powerful to collaborate and work together. Um, Mary, I'm a little bit older than you are, but I think that uh, maybe as you were beginning your career, you might have experienced something that I came into contact with, um, which was sort of the opposite of engaged scholarship. It was a bias um, in in uh, university life that one shouldn't get too emotionally involved with <laughs> uh, whatever research area was going to be um, mm-hmm. your major program. Um, what was your experience with uh, engaged scholarship? And did you feel like you had good support for your work with persons with disabilities at your university and, and uh, widely? Yeah, I, I do agree. You know, when I first started, I can remember when I was uh, a, a brand new assistant professor and I was doing some work. Uh, that actually involved with the rights of people who had uh, who are HIV positive to participate in sport, and I had a uh, a colleague at a different university, just someone that I knew professionally, who said, "You're a pretty." He said to me, "You're a pretty good, you're a pretty good academic if you just stop doing that feminist stuff." So I thought, yeah. well, uh, which didn't stop me in the, in the least, didn't it? <laughs> Whatever that meant. Um, so I just kept moving. But as as uh, you know, as Eli pointed out, it's really been very organic. That you know, I've had the opportunity to work in in different areas, looking at uh, increasing opportunities for women in sport, and now working in the area of of, mm. of disability sport. What I've found is, you know, disability sport. Um, sort of lagged a little bit behind. There's a good n- a number of people over the years, you know, um, Acosta and Carpenter and, and others who have laid the groundwork with women in sport. There hasn't been as many scholars um, really looking at disability sport. And so that is a little bit uh, a newer area that needs more advocacy. Um, I feel very fortunate um, to be able to be, I'm at the University of Louisville, at, at the University of uh, Massachusetts before this and Kennesaw State before that, but I've spent almost 20 years here at the University of Louisville and to be surrounded by colleagues who are extremely supportive. Anita Mormon, who uh, Eli mentioned before, worked on the Casey Martin case um, of our work with uh, support for people with disabilities. So I've been very, very fortunate that way to be in what I think is a very forward-thinking department in terms of looking at sport and uh, presenting sport in an inclusive inclusive environment. And I'm in a sport management program. Uh, so we are training the, the sport managers of the future. Uh, to, and so, you know, across our curriculum, we talk about inclusion. That's just part of what we do. Uh, but to be able to be a scholar, what I would say is a scholar advocate, and to be able to bridge theory and practice by looking at, uh, you know, from the academic side, what we're doing with sport for p- people with disabilities, but then being able to be active with, you know, with Eli working on the United Nations and working with the uh, with ESPN and, and helping uh, establish the ESPYs, the ESPYs for mm. Best Male and Female Athlete with a Disability. Um, you know, that's been really great. So I've been very fortunate to have a very, very supportive environment here um, with my colleagues at the University of Louisville and at, at other places as well. Uh, but it is, you know, it's uh, it's an interesting journey when you're working in academia and you're also being an advocate. Uh, things things change slowly. Uh, we've seen progress, but as I often call it, we are moving at the speed of advocacy, and which we know sometimes is not the fastest, but it's always forward. And so, like I say, I've been very, very fortunate with the colleagues that I've worked with. 
Okay, great. Now, we're just going to take a break um, in a moment here, but I'm going to ask you, uh, before we move on to looking strongly at the future, I want to ask one question here about your present work when we come back. Um, that's uh, intersectionality, so to speak, uh, the LGBT community and persons with disabilities. Uh, I'd like to have you respond a little bit to how that coalition is going. So we'll be back in just a few moments to continue our talk about the long road up. Friend us on Facebook to keep up with what's empowering the world. Voice America Empowerment. Carol Oglesby has a documented commitment to performance enhancement and development of positive embodiment along the full age and ability spectrum. She has created sport community-based programs that empower, educate, motivate in a sports plus model. She has worked with elite athletes who have experienced injury, burnout, and challenged relationships with coaches and teammates. She is a life coach dedicated to aid in the rediscovery of clarity, purpose, and joy in clients. Call Carol today at 818-324-2957. That's 818-324-2957. Follow us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. tuned in to women and sport the long road up to reach carol oglesby or her guest today please call into the program at 1-888-346-9141 that's 1-888-346-9141 now back to this week's show welcome back everybody um, I just want to finish up our last conversation with one question. In a sense, it seems to me like uh, we've got two overlapping communities. One would be the LGBT community and the other persons with disabilities. The, the communities overlap. And I, I'd like for any of the three of you or, or all three of you to just comment on um, the voice of persons with disabilities uh, within the LGBT community, and and uh, does LGBT have a, a voice within the uh, disability community? What what kind of uh, intersectionality is happening with those uh, overlapping groups? Anybody want to comment on that? Well, if, if I may uh, join in there, one of the things that you know, working with um, with people with disabilities that we've noticed, and you know, we admire greatly, of course, the good work that uh, Athlete Ally is doing. And I feel like in the disability community that we have something to learn in terms of how Athlete Ally has moved the LGBTQ um, advocacy movement forward um, and how uh, Hudson and others have been able to unify people and get them moving forward. I think that, um, that there are lessons that we could learn in the disability community on how to do the same. And Eli, you and I have had um, conversations about this. Uh, so do you want to add on to that? Yeah, I guess the only other thing that I would add is that, I mean, there definitely is in the broader sense, you know, even outside of sport, you know, the, the LGBT community and the disability community, there are, there are aspects of that, you know, people with disabilities that identify in the LGBT community for sure are involved in that kind of advocacy and, and, and there is some support to the broader disability community from the LGBT community. I would say that the, the issue perhaps is kind of more of the opportunities at the intersection of, of sport and kind of how do we really continue to enhance it. And I think that there are increasing efforts and there's more and more um, 
you know, prominent athletes with disabilities that are now supporting, you know, efforts around the LGBT community and, um, and also even managers and so forth. So I think that it's slowly happening, but I think to Mary's point, you know, there's a lot to be learned and a lot of potentially in the broader sense of disability sport and athletes with disabilities and sort of the growth and even the, all the efforts around principle six and, mm-hmm. you know, the, the things that can be learned for disability there. And, you know, it's been great to be able to collaborate with Hudson and, and really think together and work together in, in a broader sense. Um, so, so yeah, no, that's definitely a, a great um, opportunities in the horizon for sure. Try to get and the... I would, uh, I would just uh, add, I think, go ahead. Uh, I think, you know, our collective goal is to create a sporting environment in which everybody has equal access, opportunity, and experience. And so if we only focus on one area of experience and one area of identity, we're going to fall short of that total goal. Um, and so, you know, like Athlete Allies, our motto is victory through unity. Um, and so I think that those efforts that are the most successful are the ones that are framed with um, the entire diversity of the athletic community in mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think from the Paralympic side of things, we've seen the Paralympic non-discrimination uh, policy, I think, leading the way in terms of how inclusive uh, those policies can and should be. So I think there's a, a lot to learn um, both from the, the disability activist community um, as well as, you know, our work at Athlete Alley on the LGBTQ side. Um, but ultimately, it, all, of our, all of this work, all of the messaging, like if we collectively agree that everybody should have equal access opportunity and experience, then the policies that we are collectively championing um, mm-hmm. should be the same. They should, they should protect and respect everyone equally. Uh, and so I think with that in mind, we can then start to formulate very thoughtful solutions for uh, all of the, the ongoing issues in sports. I think this really brings us close to um, what um, Eli brought up before, uh, a human rights approach. And I know that uh, the three of you have had some recent collaborations, especially with the conferences of the Muhammad Ali Center. Uh, so could, I don't know who wants to go first here, but uh, tell our listeners about the Human Rights and Sport Declaration that's been created, what it is and what's going to be happening with that declaration. Anybody want to go first? Yeah, no, I'm happy to see Eli. I'm here. Uh, happy to just give a little bit of the background to start and then you know, Hudson and Mary as well. Um, we've had a really amazing collaboration with the Muhammad Ali Center for the last um, four years now where you've been able to host a, a forum with each year's the overall aspect is athletes and social change, and then each year we've kind of had different specific aspects. This past year we, we were able to collaborate with Hudson and, and focus on this notion of specifically a declaration or policy issues as it relates to sport and human rights and athlete rights. And uh, although, you know, our efforts are still evolving, and I think we really got, we, we framed it as a think tank, so we were really hoping to just get input um, and really see where people were at and what the different issues were, the diversity of issues, and, and whether or not, um, I think the way we actually framed it was nice because we looked at, you know, what do we, what kind of things need to go in, what are some of the content aspects, you know, is it necessary that we do this, is it? You know, and so there's just there's really good discussions and great presentations that came from it. Um, and I think now we're we're at a stage of 
of really reflection on, you know, what is that next step? You know, what, where do we need to take this? Mary and I actually were in an interesting conversation a couple weeks ago, uh, just again, that revisited the question of, you know, can, it, can this approach be more through education and awareness to bring about more athlete rights, or do we really need to have a, a, a policy, international United Nations policy approach, or is it some kind of a combination of the two? And um, I think those are the kinds of questions that we have to, you know, really focus on. And, and I do think, though, just the final point is that the forum itself, I, I believe, in my view, has really been amazing to see what's happening now in our society with, you know, all the athletes that are now beginning to think about athlete activism. Um, the fact that at the SB Awards, they were introduced with some statements about athlete activism and gun violence. So I think that we're beginning to see that these issues of athlete rights and athlete activism can have a safe space, um, but we also have a lot of work to do and a lot more, a long way to go. Um, and so I think that's why I'm really excited and looking forward to continuing to work, you know, with Hudson and others. You know, we were able to engage, you know, the High Commission on Human Rights, some of the United Nations offices. We were able to get a lot of interest, and I think now it's our, our opportunity to really reflect and say, well, well, what is that next step? And, and uh, you know, and, and being able to have this conversation today really contributes to that as well. So that, that's just a starting point. I don't know if um, Mary or Hudson wanted to add to that as well. Well, one of the thoughts that I have on it, and I agree in it, uh, with Eli, is um, you know developing whatever the, the document would look like, but then making the practical application. Uh, you know, because we can talk about human rights in sports. Well, what does that what does that mean to someone who's you know a sales director for a major league baseball team, or someone who's working in sports information for a Division One college athletic uh, program? You know, what does sport and human rights mean? And so taking it from the policy end and uh, uh, tying it to practice, so bridging theory and practice, which is always a, a, a challenge in sport management education. That's one of the things that I see. You know, as we move into the future, one of the steps is really um, what does it look like when we, if we operationalize it on the ground, how do we make sport managers understand what that what that can look like and what they can do in their space to promote sport and human rights. Hudson, yeah, I would, I, would, I would second all of that. Um, the one thing that I think is, is definitely top of mind is, that, you know, it's great if we can inform and influence policy, but to Mary's point, you know, how do we create mm-hmm. that accountability? Uh, because that doesn't mean that practices are actually changing because policies have. Um, so, you know, I think there's a lot of ways that the declaration could exist, could live, could impact sports at a global level. Um, I know that, you know, one of the things that's become top of mind for me is specifically looking at the bidding process for athletic championships. So when you have, uh, I think FIFA is is amending their uh, bidding process for the 2026 World Cup to include a human rights standard. Um, I think we're starting to see that at the NCAA level um, with with a sort of policy checklist that they're requiring all potential hosts to fill out. Um, so, I mean, I see, I think, a potential future where sporting events are only going to those countries or cities that are investing in human rights in a way that is um, thoughtful and proactive. Um, and so that is not only from an LGBT standpoint, but when we look at the entire diversity of the athletic community, um, these sporting events are major opportunities to invest in, uh, you know, equality broadly. Um, so, but again, you know, it's, it's, if we work together, if we put our heads together on all this, 
I think we're going to find a solution that's going to yield the best result. I want to ask a, a, this is not intended to be a trick question, but maybe it will seem like that because uh, we haven't really explored it much before. Um, you know, having been a person who worked on behalf of women's rights for so long, um, it's, I, I often say to people that they should contemplate the legal solution last because there are obviously so many uh, downsides to uh, bringing something to a legal action. But I'm looking at the national women's soccer team now and the situation where they tried to use legal means to play on uh, art turf rather than, uh, I mean, real grass rather than artificial turf. And, and they're also sort of pushing through a legalistic um, process for equal pay. Um, do you think that there's uh, any need to add le- legal um, arrows to the quiver in relation to the educational and the policy frameworks that, that uh, have been explored up to now? Uh, this is this is Hudson. I just want to say I, I think absolutely uh, a legal route is an important one. Um, when we look at how LGBT policy change has been made in the United States, all of it has happened primarily through the court system. Um, that being said, I think the one area where athlete ally, I think we failed in terms of the women who were um, fighting about playing on grass versus turf. Um, I had a very hard time finding men to speak out as allies in support of that effort. So I think one of the challenges is, yes, we, uh, the legal aspect is a good and, and powerful one, but those individuals who go that path can't be doing so in isolation. We need to make sure that we are mobilizing sports voices um, as allies for those those various communities who are fighting for their rights. Because if if we all continue to operate independently of one another, it becomes very easy to, to lose um, and not continue that progress uh, across the board. Great. Thank you. And I'll just add, all right. uh, in, the, in the field of international law, you know, I think that's where it becomes more complicated, and that's where I mm-hmm. think this notion of a declaration or this notion of really putting some frameworks into place, whether that is through the Court of Arbitration of Sport um, or other things like that, because right now there's not a lot of legal roots. Um, obviously, within each country, you know, you can uh, look at the national level law. Um, but I think that's where this notion of really creating more frameworks and legal legal tools, or even a, um, building on existing tools to um, strengthen them. You know, I think that's that's really where these questions are coming from, um, because sometimes it does come down to that. You're seeing, you know, that. Sometimes a legal route is a necessary route. Um, obviously, you'd like to see things resolved in other in other ways, with you know educational ways and 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 uh, more arbitration or whatnot. Um, but sometimes these frameworks are are missing for athletes, um, and and so I think that's where it's you know, why is sport kind of exempt from this when other areas of our daily life are not. And so I think that's why we've been interested in this question um, and exploring what, what, what do we need to put in place for the future. All right. We have time now for each of you to just make, uh, if you will, a statement about your personal hopes for the future. Uh, Mary, I'm going to ask you to start off with this. What, uh, for the next 10 years, what do you hope will you, see, will you be able to see in this area? Well, for me, you know, I'm looking at legacy. Um, I'm a sport management professor. 
and I have the opportunity to to teach people who are going to be the future sport managers that are going to move our sport industry forward. Uh, And for me, it's important that I communicate to them the power of sport, the power of sport to inform, to empower, and to transform, and to let them realize how lucky they are to work in such a global environment where they can use the power of sport for a positive influence. And we can see that happen then into the future. You know, I'm very proud of our students. A lot of our students go on and they do well. I am most proud of our students who go on and do good. And we know that there is a difference. And that's what I look to. I look to future generations who are learning now what it means to be inclusive and what it means to use sport to promote social good. Okay, Hudson and Eli, we're down to one word. What would be one word for what you'd like to see in the next 10 years? Uh, I would like to see allyship. I would like to see activism. And I would like to see uh, more men and women playing and an investment, I would say, in women and girls in sport. Okay, that's um, three so words, but that was good. Eli. Eli. Yeah, and I would just echo that from Hudson and Mary. I think the collaboration piece and the solidarity and the allyship, I mean, I really think it's so important that we go collectively on these issues rather than isolated and and again the, the human condition it's so important that we approach it at that level um, that sport becomes a safe place for everybody and so I think that that's really the legacy that I see for the future. Thanks to our guests today for sharing with us all. Next week on The Long Road Up, we'll be investigating a project which is strongly rooted in research and theory and aims to produce a positive, empowered, inclusive coach for the 21st century. So join Dr. Joan Duda, Isabel Balagar, and me next next week on The Long Road Up. Thank you for listening to Women and Sport, The Long Road Up. Please join Carol Oglesby for another edition next Tuesday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Have an amazing week.